Our scripture lesson today is uh, taken from the set of appointed readings for the church for this Sunday, All Saints Sunday. This passage from the letter 1 John, the third verse, listen for the word of God. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. This is the one about heaven. All Saints Sunday gives the occasion. That lectionary passage that I just read to you gives me the reason. So this is the one about heaven. Let me start autobiographically about how my own thinking about this idea that we have of heaven has developed or changed over the years. As any one of you who knows me knows, I grew up in the church. So I've had ideas of heaven and hell and the afterlife and eternity kind of knocking around in my imagination, since well before I knew that these are things we could even think about. Maybe you have too. Specifically, I grew up in what is called the mainline Protestant church. You know, our kind of church. Presbyterian, United Methodist, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Disciples of Christ, United Church of Christ. You can go down the list of those so-called mainline, moderate, middle of the road, sort of inclusive theologically, gentle congregations, traditions, committed to the wider culture. But for some reason, I would occasionally throughout my childhood find myself in harder core, more evangelistic kinds of places. Maybe you did too. I'm talking about rallies, revivals, crusades, camp meetings, churches that would have altar calls at the end of the sermon when you'd be invited to come down the sawdust trail forward to make a commitment to Jesus. There was, it was kind of a sidebar to my routine church experience. I remember when I was seven years old, for what reasons I don't really know even today, my mother packed up my sister and me and walked us down to the end of the street where there was a Salvation Army church for a nighttime rally with a singing group called the Sounders. I remember when they made their call for people to commit their lives to Christ, I lifted my little finger like this so no one would see it, but I, so I could still do it. I remember tent revivals held by the full gospel businessmen's group. I remember charismatic prayer meetings, 1970s Jesus movement concerts. I worked a Billy Graham crusade once in the Detroit area when I was in high school. 
New Year's Eve, friends of mine and I, we'd go out church topping because it was just interesting. And we'd end up at a kind of four-square gospel church down the street in which everyone was told to get right with Jesus before the New Year starts. Now, these weren't my home base churches, but they were still a kind of nagging spiritual nudge. One thing in those parts of the church that was clearly different from my mainline church home was how the afterlife was talked about, how the idea was used, particularly the idea of heaven and hell. They were talked about all the time. And talk about heaven was always tied to talk about salvation. Now, I might call these kinds of churches John 3.16 churches. You know that phrase, you see it in football stands, or at least you used to, the sign. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. They heard in that verse, in verses like it, something like this. I need to be saved. Before anything else, my salvation is about surviving a final judgment and avoiding eternal punishment for not getting faith right here. If I can do that, if I can get right with God, God will take care of the rest. But make no mistake, I have to make the first move. I even heard the old workhorse now and then, if you died tonight... If you're in an accident, a car accident, on the way home from church tonight, will you go to heaven or will you go to hell? Don't let another minute pass without your eternal reward secured. And what was the central eternal reward that we could achieve for ourselves after we died? A place of relief, of happiness, of paradise. Garden of Eden restored and a release from the pain of my ambiguous existence this side of eternity. Seemed like a worthy goal. But to be honest about all of that, while I listened to it and took it pretty seriously, I was never really satisfied with that approach. If that's all there was to it. The less judgy approach of my mainline home made more sense to me. For to that John 3.16 Christianity, my church added the next verse, John 3.17. And so imagined God and salvation and the afterlife a little bit differently. You know that next verse? Indeed. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The emphasis there, God's desire to save, not to condemn. God's love before God's judgment. Nicely summed up in a paraphrase of a sentence from the Apostle Paul in one of the letters he wrote to the church at Corinth that one of the pastors of my mainline church was wont 
to quote, God's final answer is always yes. That approach to heaven and hell seemed less about avoiding judgment than about embracing goodness. Judgment got folded in, but it was less about God's punishment than it was, ironically, about God's love. Judgment was God's painful yes, even to our no. Hell, in that view, is less about punishment for failing to accept Jesus than about separation from God that I might freely, however sadly, choose for myself. Being eternally lost in ourselves, and I'm not that interesting, I'm not interesting enough to spend eternity with, being lost in ourselves for eternity because we don't want God sounds bad enough, but it's a little easier to take than the idea that God directly torments us. So heaven, in that approach, is less about individual reward than it is about a grand and giant eternal yes to our yes, an endless reunion an endless sense of God's presence, a hallelujah chorus of community with others who have made the same yes. It is less individualistic, which seemed right, but it's still something that I get, or we get, in response to the attitude we take to life. Extending our yeses or our noes into the everlasting. Maybe that is the view that you have inherited. It's really very common in our part of the church. But about its impact on this life, it feels useful, feels even reassuring, especially at the time of death. But I don't know if it makes that much difference for our day-to-day -day living. So over time, I found myself restless with that view too. Wondering if there is more to know. So I kept looking. And the more I read scripture and the more I heard thoughtful teaching, and the more I saw God at work in the lives of real people, the more I sensed that our faith holds a deeper vision of heaven than what is contained in either a three, John 3.16 or John 3.17 kind of view. And here's what I began to see. From the creation of all that is to the consummation of all that is in a new creation, through the twists and turns of history, through the twists and turns of divine judgment, of God dealing with the nations and tribes and families and persons, God's yes is finally not a yes to just individuals. As if God is a cosmic service provider to improve our individual lives. God's Yes, is to a vision 
of well-being and wholeness and healing for all people and all creation, to which God invites and brings the nations and the tribes and the families and the individual people that God creates. And the contours of that deeper vision are drawn in the life and the death and the resurrection and the eternal love of Christ. God's yes does name what is broken or incomplete or evil, but names them in the context of a love that is more winsome and more welcoming and in the end more powerful than what breaks or prevents or does harm. The lion and the lamb sleeping together. The child putting its hand over the den of the snake. The holy mountain where tears are dried and tears are repaired. Where wounds are healed and ignorance enlightened. Where confession is shared in a loving and forgiving spirit. Estrangement reconciled, hunger satisfied, enemies loved, and peace fills every breath. Where the same words I just used, tears, tears, wounds, ignorance, confession, estrangement, hunger, enemies, where those words have no meaning, except in the way that they are silenced by love. Heaven is not an extension of life for good behavior or cash back for saying the right words. Heaven is a promise of mending through all eternity that is meant to be sure and meant to get our attention and meant to have enough grit to it to deeply, viscerally, actually influence how we live now. Nations, tribes, families, and each one of us sitting in these pews or watching online. And so hear those verses again from 1 John. The first verse See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. God gives us what God promises because of God's love. God's yes is stronger than our no, even if it appears not to be right now. The world does not know it yet, and and we're part of the world, to be honest, because he is not yet fully known. But his love is nevertheless the love that brings us in. And so the second verse. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. When he is revealed, when all things are complete in him, 
when we finally see what we can only glimpse now, our truth will be revealed too in love. And we, with all others, will find ourselves bound to the one who made us. He who was healed in resurrection will heal. He who is revealed in love will reveal. He who is God's reconciliation with what is will reconcile all things in God. And what he will do, he does already. And so the third verse And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. To hear this promise is not just to put it on the shelf for later use, but to hear it now allows us to be something. To be alive to life in a different kind of way. To be open to life with a different kind of confidence, a bit more like the life that made us. That's the image of purity there. You see, eternity is not for us. Eternity is for Christ. And so in eternity, all things are in Christ forever, finally alive. Wishful thinking? Poetic, maybe a little inspiring, but still not really ready to make the kind of here and now difference that I want it to? I want to think not. I want to think that this can and even does make that kind of difference. I want to think that it does have that power to bring eternity close. So try something with me, if you would. Think about someone from whom you are estranged. A child or a parent, a coworker or a friend, a stranger who had power over you and used it unfairly. A stranger you've had power over and used it unfairly or unwisely, even if by accident. A lover with whom hurt has gone so deep or communication has been so misunderstood or, or feelings so confused that you know there is no way back. Think about trauma that you cannot name but whose reverberations can't be calmed. Think about victims for whom you so want to advocate, but no one will listen. Think about harm that you've done, knowing or not, that you just can't fix, or are maybe too afraid to admit. Think about what feels unforgiven, or incomplete, or unclear, or injured. Think about all you've done in thanks for what's whole and what is good in your life. All that you have done for others 
as best as you could, even if, even if it feels ambiguous or complicated or, or not quite enough. Got it? Now, accept that more gritty promise of heaven that is at the heart of our faith. Accept it as a real and reliable and realizable promise that all that has been broken will be healed, if only in eternity. That all truth that has been hidden will be known without threat. That there will be nothing left to prove or flee or protect yourself or your family or your tribe or your nation from. That enemies will sit together without fear. That the traces of this heaven that we do experience here, and we do, will be perfected. And with all that in mind, wonder what difference this promise can make to how you live through your life now. In what you choose to worry about. In what you want. In what you love. In what you say to heal things in what you give to repair things, in what you forgive to mend things, what you accept to move beyond, what you resist to make space for something new, what you do to create something new, what you give thanks for to touch God, this hope of heaven is a hope that allows us to engage life, not escape life. It allows us to love in the midst of hatred and fear, to work in the midst of suffering and anxieties, to wait in the midst of pressure and obstacles, to forgive in the midst of injustice, and misunderstanding, to be strong in the midst of temptation and attack, to seek reconciliation instead of revenge in the midst of violence and blame and pain, to find pleasure in small things and in other people, to accept the moment you're living through in order to lift it up and give it to God, and to live knowing that through eternity all will be well. In other words, to be children of God. This is a lot, I know, but we've got eternity to enjoy it. And we've got now to start. That's why this is the one about heaven. Amen.